go to thecognitiverampage.com. Feel free to contribute, donate, keep fueling the change, whatever it is that you guys can do to help continue to allow this to happen. None of this would happen without you and your love and your support and, of course, your contributions. Love you. Cognitive Rampage, a scientific approach to self-discovery, change, and life optimization is now available on Amazon. What I do in the book is I fuse the latest research from the cognitive, behavioral, social, environmental, and biological sciences. It's not just motivational fluff and wordplay. Now, I do talk about my own story, so there's some kind of inspiration in there, but I'm not just spinning words and hyping you up with motivational fluff. Whether you need a life change, simply enjoy self-exploration and optimization, want to discover new hidden passions, or reduce the life-altering effects of toil, anxiety, depression, all of those issues, this book is for you. This book is not a cookie-cutter method of steps to follow. You'll customize the scientific framework with your own personal beliefs to build your authentic change. That way you assimilate it faster and quicker. It's not just copying my beliefs and telling you step one, step two. These will come from your beliefs as how you extend and build the foundation upon this framework. You'll use this framework throughout your whole life, through every change, and through every age. These are not empty words of motivational spin. This book is an experience. The Cognitive Rampage is based in science and is built from your beliefs. It's a path to help you unleash your desired change. You can apply this method on your own with no harmful side effects. Welcome to Cognitive Rampage Podcast. Hope you're taking care of you. Hope you're living your Cognitive Rampage. Back-to-back podcast posts of interviews of other podcasts I was on talking a lot about mental health and addiction. On this interview, I was on the Young Justice podcast, created, hosted, cultivated, expanded by Mr. Zach Rhodes. Zach Rhodes and I got connected through a mentor of his, I would believe, definitely a mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Stanton Peel. Uh, They are working closely together, actually, on a book right now. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that, but it's out there now, boys. Sorry. But Zach and I got acquainted. uh, Well, he reached out to me after hearing Stanton, uh, uh, Stanton's first appearance on the podcast. Um, And we referenced, actually, Stanton coming on the podcast recently, as you'll hear on this interview. Uh, But we've already posted that one. That was uh, episode 183. Uh, I enjoyed that one uh, immensely, talking to such a great mind and addiction, but uh, Zach Rose is a, another young, great mind who is expanding a lot of research and digging in uh, and adding to it himself and expanding a lot of different thoughts and theories and research from disagreeing parties into uh, the mixture on his podcast and the people he has on as well. But uh, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, chatting with Zach. He asked a few left field questions that I wasn't ready for. We, uh, well, I'd say I scrolled this off a few times, but that's what I do, I guess, in the cognitive rampage. But uh, it was uh, an honor and a pleasure, and it was uh, kind for Zach to reach out and invite me to be on the show. But um, yeah, this is my interview on the Young Justice podcast hosted by Zach Rhodes. Hey everybody, welcome to the Young Justice Podcast. This is Zach Rhodes. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. 
At one point, I thought the show was going to be a few episodes, then done. Um, that's not the case. I think I'm going to go on into the indefinite future. I don't see myself stopping anytime soon. And I really want to continue doing it for free. In fact, I should say that differently. It is non-negotiable that I will continue doing the show for free. And I want to do it without begging for money. So one thing you can do to help me out with that, um, I just want to be fully transparent. I don't want any, I don't want to try to gimmick anybody out of any money or anything like that. Um, so I'm not going to ask for donations. And uh, I have linked up with Audible. They sponsor me. One thing you can do is check out audibletrial.com slash youngjustice. That's my Audible link. And if it's of interest, do the 30-day free trial. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash youngjustice. Um, every time somebody does the 30-day trial, the show gets a kickback. And I can use that money to pay for the hard-earned work of uh, Zach DeFranco, the sound engineer. Of course, he's much more than a sound engineer. He's one of those guys, like, in any kind of... Uh, Nonprofit gig who's just doing so many different jobs at once, and uh, that just happens to be the title that I've I've gone with. But uh, he's working across the board and just going to Audible, getting a free 30-day trial. That will really help, believe it or not. And uh, you get a free audiobook out of the deal. Then maybe I get to pay Zach and get equipment. And one day I'll have a period of time where I'm paying myself too. Well, I'll slow down there though. Look, another way you can support the show is by leaving a review in your podcast app through which you're listening. That will go an especially long way on the Apple Podcast app or your iTunes store. And that's enough of that. Today, I am speaking with Adam Lowry. Um, Adam is the host of the Cognitive Rampage podcast. He's an author. He holds a grad degree, and he's a licensed clinical practitioner, although he's decided to ditch that title, and he calls himself a life coach. And he explains why in our dialogue. Um, I learned a lot about Adam when he hosted an interview with Stanton Peel. If you're a new listener and happen not to know Stanton, uh, Stanton is a pioneer in the addiction field, to say the least. And he's also a colleague, and he's a per diem co-host on my program, sort of a resident expert type of thing. So Adam's interview with Stanton, of course, was of interest to me, so... I've started listening to Adam's work, and I just ordered his book, which is called Cognitive Rampage. It's the name, sh- the na- namesake, yeah. It's the namesake to his podcast, and I'm really digging what he's doing, man. You'll hear that he's just a calm and authentic, very inquisitive guy, easy to talk to, and very clearly bright. He and I are like-minded in the way we think about addiction as something both very real, but also something that can really only be understood by looking across biological, psychological, and social or societal aspects of somebody's life. Um, yeah, so we talk a lot about that and just kind of his background and how he got to where he is. It's really interesting. It, it really, most of it's in line with what I do. We talk about a few things I don't really know much about, uh, just because we didn't have time to get into it, but one is a style of work that he has invented, sort of a, I don't know if he calls it a therapy, he might not but sort of this kind of psychological work that he's done, um, and I don't really know about it. It sounds like an offshoot of more general cognitive behavior therapy, but maybe that's something that I will learn more about by when I get his book. Um, and he's writing a new book right now about what he calls Athlete's Depression, which, of course, is uh, just kind of honing in on one of the very many ways a person can become depressed or out of touch with their lives. But all of this to say, uh, he's just 
uh, clearly innovative guy. He's doing so much good in the world. Um, he's come from a point of being an athlete in school to being lost out in the real world, doing, you know, kind of violent and, as he said, street stuff, as he calls it. You can check him out now that he's doing all these amazing things. Check him out at adamlowry.com. That's L-O-W-E-R-Y. And check out the podcast as well, called Cognitive Rampage. You'll notice that the sound is much clearer, much better in this talk than others, and that is a function of Zach DeFranco. So thank you, Zach, and the sound is going to continue to approve as we accrue new equipment, so remember that just by signing on for 30 days on Audible, that's going to go a long way in getting the sound gear that we need. Plus, you get a free audiobook out of the deal. Again, that link is audibletrial.com slash youngjustice. And folks, I am going to shut up now. Without further preamble, I give you Adam Lowry. mental health counselor, author, and also host of Cognitive Rampage podcast, Adam Lowry. Adam, thank you so much for being with me, man. Thanks for having me on, man. Well, it's interesting. I learned about you because you interviewed a colleague of mine, Stanton Peel, on your show. You're clearly a bright guy and seem really authentic, but I don't know enough about you. I wish I've been now getting into your work, and I need to read your book still. But, um, you know, I saw you on Rogan. I've li- that was pretty cool. I listened to a few of your shows. In many ways, we're like-minded. Uh, maybe we'll figure out there are areas that we disagree. I don't even know. It should be interesting. Um, but that's the extent of my knowledge about you. So can you just tell my listeners and me, I guess, a little bit about your background and how you became interested in addiction and what your books and your show are all about? I'll do the best I can without uh, trying to be too detailed, but... Uh, it's hard to incorporate, right? What, uh, we believe are the important things, right. That make us who we are. <laughs> so it's hard to incorporate it all, I think. But, uh, I think like a lot of people, the addiction for me, uh, started questioning my own self. Um, just yeah, the, the upbringing, uh, like a lot of people, uh, abusive at times, uh, violent most of the time, but anyway, through that, uh, through some college football dreams, ending, et cetera, uh, I stayed kind of a bad guy. Uh, stayed uh, doing street stuff, if you will. We'll just sum it up to that. And uh, I experienced uh, some, I guess you could call it addiction, but it's hard to call it that, right, when you're feeling uh, rather successful in what you're doing. And uh, had a change of heart <laughs> to, to uh, sum up a lot. Uh, it took about two years, man, and just kind of walked around the country, um, out from a Native American reservation to uh, down the Keys working as a, a hole digger, just kind of wanted to lose it all and came back wanting to find answers and uh, for myself and went back to school, became a mental health counselor, finished a couple degrees really quickly. Uh, I'd never, I'd never done school like that before. So it was my first to go back and, and uh, I don't know, just absorb it all so quickly and go beyond that knowledge too. Uh, I didn't just read required. I read three of the books that were cited in the textbook that I'd read, uh, just trying to learn it all and uh, got into addiction treatment as a, as a counselor, addiction counselor and just didn't like what I was seeing. Uh, I couldn't help it. I, I've been an avid chess player my whole life, and I couldn't help but move the pieces forward. Uh, when I found myself being asked to uh, run groups under the AA and NA flag, and in all of my schooling, I hadn't had one class in that whatsoever. And uh, the light 
if any, inclusion on advanced treatment uh, uh, modalities were being ignored uh, and somewhat fought by the other side. And uh, frankly, you know, I, I talked recently on another podcast. He asked me, you know, how, how, you know, how awesome was it to be on Rogan, et cetera. And that opportunity, sure, it was great and uh, helped get the, the at least some, some attention drawn to what I call chemical incarceration, uh, mm-hmm. the current system of addiction treatment uh, and also mental health treatment, but uh, at least the generally practiced way. Uh, I knew when I went on that show, man, that I was going to blackball myself in a community where I just spent a, a lot of money uh, getting a degree and where it was hard to get a job in that uh a well-paying job, I should say, in that field anyway. Yeah. And I knew I knew once I went on there, it was over. And sure enough, uh, the minute I got off of Rogan, before I could even leave L.A., I was let go from both of my positions that I had uh, the next day. What did they say? They called you and said, all right, you're done? Yeah. Uh, the director of one, uh, I think I've named it a few times on my podcast, but uh, I'll leave it out now. The actual director guy called me himself and was dancing around some sort of uh, incomplete application process uh-huh. and was referring to HR. They had found a policy because something was written wrong on an application process that uh, they had to dismiss or restart the hiring process. And they just happened not to be rehiring right now. Oh, isn't and that interesting? <laughs> Dude, I, I, I walked him, you know, like Bill Bird talks about uh, salespeople, you know, getting no customer service. But yeah. why is that? Well, why is that? I just kept walking him around in circles and he wouldn't admit it. And uh, it wasn't shortly thereafter. Uh, the other place uh, that was just opening a uh, what they called a new approach to addiction uh, called me as well and uh, <laughs> no longer was in need of my services. So, it, you know, you see it on, on two different ends, right, on rather perception. And that actually... That, that rippled into my personal life too, man. Uh, being on Rogan and announcing that and blackballing my career, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, but it made me go, okay, that, that, that's how we're going to play. Uh, all right. I was trying to be nice. And now I said, now, now we're calling everybody out. We're pointing out the system, the truths, the flaws. Uh, and I went full rampage, man, full cognitive rampage on them. Good for you. Now, I want to get into uh, cognitive rampage, how you use that term. It's the name of your book and what that means. But uh, bef- you were somewhere, you don't want to name the place, but it was in Florida, right? There's a rehab center in Florida that you were working? Uh, yeah, a uh, children's facility, actually, a uh, dual yeah. diagnosis facility. Interesting. So uh, what was, you said that you were appalled by kind of the systems that were going on there and tactics that they used. Just You named just a few of those things. What, what do you mean by... Um, you called it chemical incarceration well yeah it was referred to basically exchanging one drug for another let me get you off the street drug and take our prescription drugs uh as the direct treatment you know without proper observation length of time uh, full diagnosis um medicare days really depicted more the treatment than anything else how many days you had left how many you earned uh you know a good story i think that sums it up is one of my second to last days I was uh, approached by uh, a higher up. Uh, now, my direct supervisor is uh, a man I love very much, but uh, he couldn't do anything. Long story short, uh, the the big head head guy on campus comes down to me and is upset because um, I haven't discharged this patient that's out of days. They've given him uh, 24 hours extra, et cetera. Now, mind you, the same patient six months ago um, – because he had days, <laughs> would not discharge or do other things. But now that he has limited days, 
he had no discharge set up. We couldn't find him a safe place, et cetera, you know, at least the things you can control uh, as a counselor. And there was a well-known address across the state on the other side, about a four-hour bus ride away, that really was the address to an oak tree in the middle of a parking lot. And homeless shelters, um, by common practice, don't volunteer their addresses because their lines get too long, et cetera, and they have pickup locations. And this tree in the middle of a parking lot was a destination as that. Well, I refused to discharge this patient to this location. And uh, it was pretty much threatened to me that that's going to happen either way. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm done. That was just part of it, you know. And there's things in place, sure, that help. I, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to sound naive either, right, that certain medications for certain diagnosis, I don't want to go that far. But the fact that we're limited to just that, and that is the frontline approach. I mean, intakes, my, my friend, were being done by high school graduates that would do an interview and on patient self-report write down a diagnosis because you have to have a diagnosis before you can admit them, before insurance will clear them. So you're getting self-report diagnosis of past ones using uh, being used as diagnosis to get them in the facilities so basically they can charge them. Then they have 72 hours to see the psychiatrist. Uh, now this person may be repeating that while intoxicated or while, while using. And so I t- there's all kinds of, of issues with it, my friend. I could go on and on. Well, let me just parse it for a minute because I think that you are, in your mind, being nuanced, and I know what you mean. But let me just – for people who have trouble parsing it themselves, because it's interesting, I get in the middle of this argument between, well, particularly, like, we'll say, like, Maya Solovitz and there's Stanton Peel. Those those are two sides that I get in the middle of because Maya will um, fearlessly explain the utility of medication-assisted treatment, and she points, correctly so, to the NCBI data. So, really, that's all to say that in the right circumstances – uh, MAT saves lives. It can cut death rate. Stanton will argue, yeah, well, it will save lives, but let's not let's stop calling it treatment. And that gets into what you're saying a little bit when people say that these drugs themselves are treatment, and they use that they weaponize the the drugs themselves to complete whatever type of rehab they say that they're doing. Uh, I think that sounds like that's what you're getting down on. So it's not that they're administering drugs and that's inherently bad, is that what you're saying? But it's more that they are administering drugs, saying it's the be-all, end-all, and then uh, being unscrupulous all the way. Correct. And we'll announce that, look, mixed with proper psychotherapy and counseling, we, we know you make advancements and you'd be quicker. And that part is important. So applying psychotherapy to me was not reading a – PDF file that was printed out that morning as protocol for my process group that morning right. and and treading along the fan that being founded in the foundations of uh, hard to test empirical uh, modality like AA approach and the NA approach. I'm not saying that these don't have benefits or don't work. I'm more of a fan of, you know, use everything, have, you know, open access to everything. If some results work, do that. Uh, it was the limited approach that, that this is the foundation of the psychotherapy that we're mixing with the medication approach, um, which even if you just change that or open that with the medication approach, you may see better results. Right. So it's really just the difference between harm reduction and then what people want to be calling therapy. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you got off Rogan. I'm glad I mentioned it. I didn't know whether I wanted to or not, but it sounds like it was sort of foundational because you got a call just after you were done from both of your jobs, and now you're kind of going rogue, so to speak. 
And um, I know I'm skipping ahead plenty of chapters in your life story, but you ended up writing this book. It's called uh, Cognitive Rampage. So talk about talk about your book and what's in it. Yeah, the uh, subtitle actually changed. The first edition was just a dose of authentic revelation, kind of me wanting to, wanting to get the book out as fast as I could. And um, what I noticed is there's an argument, if you will, between those in specific fields of the research. You you would see cognitive practitioners leaning on that as the approach, behavioralists, et cetera, um, you know, holistic approaches, bio, biological approaches. Uh, but stemming to this is what it's about. And you do see integrative approaches as what they call it for an umbrella, but actually direct practice when it's happening. Uh, they tend to lean a certain way. So rather than a, a dominant of all of each one of them or uh, one field being stronger than the other, I wanted to see if I could pull together um, the most scientific backed portions of the research of those areas of psychology and find a way to build a framework. Now, myself being a cognitive based person, I have a lot of uh, focus in changing beliefs and how we work on how we think, why we think, what we uh, think, et cetera. But utilizing that through a personal revelation, through people's own work, their own beliefs, and attaching that method to certain uh, activities uh, attached to behavior psychology, social psychology, et cetera, down to biology, right? And not being naive to say, hey, you know, uh, epigenetic and genetic effects actually happen, but incorporating all that and letting someone build a framework of self-discovery, change on their own, or even just optimizing uh, their own life currently, right? That's where you can apply it rock bottom or uh, doing really well. So, what I realized I put together, and you know, I, it goes back to, to when I was really young. It's kind of odd for some people, but uh, Dr. Albert Ellis was a huge fan. Uh, I, was, or I was a huge fan of, and still am. He was one of the first guys when I was kind of transferring from one kind of, I don't know, street life, if you will, and I read uh, A Guide to Rational Living. For some reason, that book slapped me in my rational face, <laughs> and uh, I, I couldn't tell that BS story anymore, right, and shape my life, and I thought... Then I watched some videos, and I was like, dude, this dude's gangster, man. <laughs> he, just, <laughs> he just tells it like it is. He yeah. curses like crazy, right? He's like, well, uh, I'm not the irrational. Let's talk about you. You are the irrational one. And I'm like, dude, he's just he's man. <laughs> so I, I love that approach. It was an influence uh, behind kind of how I saw it. So uh, I came up with TSBT, Transrational Structure Behavior Theory. He was known for REBT. That's what I remember first seeing something like that. And... You know, what I thought was really neat when I got into psychology and becoming a mental health counselor, I thought, man, it's still like the, the new era. Like it's a field to where it's not like, you know, land discovery, right? The conquistadors kind of covered that back then. You can't break new ground and discover new land right now. Oh, yeah. but, in psych but in psychology, it was new. Like they, these guys went back to the 70s, even up to now, right? New theorists. And I'm going, what's the difference between if we can come up with theories and approaches, link these to real science and research, Man, I thought, wow, it's what, what a cool idea to be a counselor. You can really apply new stuff and research. And that's where I came up with transrational structure behavior theory. Uh, I was doing a Ustream show. It was terrible at the time uh, called The Cognitive Rampage before I was on Rogan. I really wasn't doing anything uh, except trying to give didactic lessons, if you will, uh, as I grew TSBT to an audience of probably six or seven <laughs> that were watching live. <laughs> and uh so uh, as that came to be, I said, man, I, I can't write. Even on Rogan, I called the book uh, Mastering Life Transitions, what I, was the title of the book at the time. And I thought, man, I can't sell transrational structure behavior theory. And then the cognitive rampage is what the show was. 
And I t- look, I tell you what, man, I have a huge <laughs> regret. I call it podcast podcast remorse. Uh, it happens to a lot of people. But my first time on Rogan, he asked me the question, "What does that mean?" And I responded terribly. My, <laughs> it, my answer in fear was, well, sometimes when uh, I'm talking, I get a little rampagey. <laughs> yeah. And oh my God, I can't unlive that, man. <laughs> and for me, it, at the time, it was, you know, an enthusiastic questioning and a humbling, a humble questioning of self, others, and the world uh, in a pursuit of competence to be able to shape the perceptions of what I call my truth uh, and define my own happiness, right? It was this rampage of thought that allows me the control at the same time. And it was inspired, the rampage part, I know it gets some bad play, but my grandfather used to tell me when I was really little, he was always like eight foot nine to me. Uh, he'd tell me, you know, what's what's the scariest thing, the scariest kind of man? I was like, well, it's a psycho man, how to control man. He said, yeah, except a controlled psycho man. And I thought, you know, we all kind of feel crazy from time to time mm. and feel like rampaging. But if we can apply that cognitive filter to it, you know, we can live our lives in a cognitive rampage, that rampaging for growth, really, and uh, learning. And that's what it, it really became. Really well said. So that's getting close to saying, except you said it more elegantly, but it's getting close to saying, you know, we're wrong about most things most of the time, but we can nonetheless live a flourishing life by kind of taking control of the reins. Yeah, in in a way, it's it's. I, I hate it to be related to things that are unprovable, like the secret and manifestation of thought. And that's not sometimes you get mixed into that. But it's a real notion when you you know explain to people that we create a perception of something. It's not about denying scientific fact, right? These are things in the present that uh, have evidence that can be repeated. Uh, that's not, some may call it semantics, but for the most part, whatever we experience, our perception of life uh, in the past or in the present, we really do have that power to change the perception of what that was to us, the story of it, the narrative, the impact of it. We really have that. And it's amazing how much, you know, we believe our experience of whatever it was to be true uh, and to be, you know, what it is. And we, we keep it powerful. And that's that cognitive approach. And it's, it's difficult, man, for people to grasp that at first. That's kind of the first kick in the front door psychology of, of TCR really is can you accept that the truth here, at least in the physical world, not provable provable by science and repeated evidence, for the most part, you control that perception. And if you ride a roller coaster, you know, and you tell me it wasn't scary, I write it and I say it was who's telling the truth. Yeah. And that's the front door that that I think you 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 have to kick in sometimes that is hard to do. I love the way your mind's trending there, man. I work in Stanton's life process program, and that's what it's all about. It's really, you may as well call it rewriting your life story, and that's what we're writing about right now. So a little about me, um, we haven't been properly introduced, but I work in uh, child development. So I'm a developmental specialist here in Vermont, and so that's why he and I got together because we both sort of had an aha moment when talking to each other that our fields so intricately relate to each other. And both of us have this idea that we live life thinking that our story is one thing and can absolutely change it. Will you talk about how that worked for you? Uh, you don't have to get into too much detail because I know you kind of moved through it quickly. You said you were, as you say it, you were on, you were doing street stuff. And you made a transition from that to schooling to doing this thing you're so passionate about. Can you just tell, like, are there any stepping stones you could explain from how you got from one place to the other? Well, I think 
it was changing a belief, right? It was questioning my own narrative. Everything I wrote about, I, you know, I tell my story in the beginning of the book, uh, kind of briefly in one, one short chapter. Uh, and if you read along the book, what you'll see is kind of how I applied TSBT in my own life, uh, and kind of carved it out of that experience and being willing to question that. And, Look, I had painted uh, enough enough reasons and, and irrationale in my story to continue with the reason I, I toted guns and uh, moved shipments from uh, Key West to Miami through Orlando, right? There's, there's uh, been in shootouts, right? There's things when, when something like that becomes your narrative or the story you tell, um, when it does depend on life and death, sometimes it is hard to change that story. But questioning that... And I think being willing to let go of all that was hard. And I think that's probably the, that was the hardest step for me was that crossover uh, and being willing to let go of all the things I thought I was supposed to be uh, based on what I had been through. Right. I could paint the story. We all do. Well, of course, he's this. Look at the uh, rap sheet. Or we could say, man, of course, he's made it to this. Look at the rap sheet. And when you can change it like that, I think that was the hardest thing for me is because the pain that came from the stories the experiences, that pain felt real. And being able to let go of that pain and turn that more to thank God that happened to me rather than why God did that happen to me, I think was the first pivotal stone in the, in the transformation. I love the way you're talking about it because I've heard you before say that you had addictions. And even in the beginning of this talk, you said, I guess you'd call it an addiction. Um, but you are telling the story right now without using the word one time, and you're just kind of talking about your experiences and your perceptions, which I guess is your whole, uh, the whole thing you kind of do and live right now. Um, it's like addiction. Brother, my, if you want to give me an addiction of anything at the time, yeah. if you want to, if someone needs to label that, it would be the adrenaline. Yeah. It would be trying to replace what I got playing college football and high school football, uh, trying to replace that. Uh, from a social connection standpoint to a, you know, forgive the slang word, to a ride-or-die reference of you're really in this, um, that probably was something more I was chasing. And what came along with that was trying different substances, what I consider the human experience, right? Just uh, experiencing certain substances, their effects, right? Uh, and with the environmental push, the people, places, things, everything that I was living with, the story, all of that combined is what was creating my symptom of addiction mm -hmm. and violence and, and anger. And rather than focus on that, it was about a full transformation for, you know, it was forget the symptoms, forget, you know, why I'm even doing that. Uh, it was about changing all of those. And all of those are influential from my biology uh, to how I allowed my brain to think and giving it a different space uh, at different time, that two-year walkabout to allow new neural pathways to develop new ways of thinking to develop while I was re just doing the reframing. Uh, you know, a lot of people talk on social media, they've seemed to have grabbed onto the idea of reframing and it sounds good. And, uh, but that's not deep enough, you know, just changing around the words to sound better. Well, it sounds better, but if our beliefs are still rooted in, if our schemas and our neural pathways, the way and how we think, uh, don't change, then you, you you're kind of lying to yourself a little bit. Yeah, I, I I love the way you're talking about it, man. This is great. So you, I was saying before that uh, I was wondering what you were addicted to, and it sounds like now you've given me a good description of you. There was there were several involvements, behaviors, some substances, whatever it was, but you were chasing something that 
you know, you used to get some sort of rush or you had something that was part of your life when you said you were playing college football and you was missing. So you were behaving in a way that was compensatory for the things that you used to get. What I love about it is that you can't define it to one particular behavior or one particular drug. And I think that does a really good job of outlining the nature of addiction in general. Well, you'll appreciate this being a child development specialist. The, for me, the hypervigilance, the environment that I lived in in my home from birth till my, my mom finally broke out and left, I think I was like 16, uh, it was a state of hypervigilance the whole time. So at any minute, it could just, it would pop off in the house, man. Mm. And so if that happened, I, I was constantly like that. I, I don't really recall an evening or a day to where I wasn't going, oh, shit, oh, shit. You know, I don't, yes, sir. You know, okay. Yeah, definitely did that. And now, mind you, I got my own trouble. I didn't, uh, it's not like I was some good kid and just uh, <laughs> didn't deserve maybe some of that stuff too. But right. I don't know, it's debatable. But that environment itself, even for my mother that lived through it, that that's now, uh, you know, away from it for a long time, 26 years exposed to that was, it was almost like a PTSD. That environment was influential. So I, I came out of the womb and walked through the womb in high school all into living in a state of hypervigilance. So, um, you know, when that left, that, 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 whew, it got pretty, uh, <laughs> yeah, it turned into a Guy Ritchie film, as I like to say after that. <laughs> well said. I, look, I can understand now, if you were starting to become more aware of the, of the whole process of addiction and yourself, why you would be so, I guess I said appalled earlier by the rehab facilities that you were working in, and particularly, uh, you know, MAT. What were they giving people, uh, methadone and suboxone? Yeah, methadone is a boxing, but that those come. Each psychiatrist has their own little. Uh, used to reference it as the silver bullet for this or the silver bullet for that, and these were pairs. Uh, some drugs that had nothing to do with mental uh, illness relatedly uh, did. They would mix it with certain ones because it had this effect, and it'd be sometimes be four, five, six different play things, Ooh. just messing with it, man. Because you know we had to sit with the you know the treatment review every week. So I'm sitting there with my six patients from this psychiatrist, my four patients from this psychiatrist, and they all have their own, this is my silver bullet for bipolar. This is my approach to treat this. And I'm like, fuck, this is theoretical, man. I'm like, yeah, oh yeah. I'm, I'm like, they're rolling dice here, man. Considering your experience, it's like treatment for addiction, the way that you saw it was being focused on people's weaknesses and not on data. It's just utter bullshit. It keeps people stuck in, as you would say, a narrative that they're no good, right? And that the best they can do is stay in remission. And that maybe there is a silver bullet fix for it. Exactly. And from their own philosophy is they're wrong because, you know, we all know that you have to be affected by the biopsychosocial right over the criterion to be affected as a real disorder. Mm -hmm. So our applied treatment does not apply for the biopsychosocial. It may apply a little bit for the bio, but maybe not when we're looking at the medication application. Uh, now, the psycho, the treatment that we're doing, well, one, it's not rational or is it a real place where you are locked down that's not jail, where people wake you up, make you go to group, hand you a nutritious meal, check your vitals you know, every six hours, um, give you smoke breaks, right? This isn't reality. In 30 to 60 days in that reality is not the environmental change. And we know the epigenetic effect already. So we take people, we help their biology change for a little bit, sort of, but then I'm not sure about the neurobiology, right? right. And 
and then we give them a false environment expecting change and we have nothing to do with the social we just hope that they'll change their social on their own knowing the social uh the uh the man socioeconomic issues that impacts being able to change environments etc and we offer them groups find groups to go meet with and meet with the same people talking about the same things at the same places uh, opposite the foundation so for me i always like solutions it's that's what tsbt was about it's a equal approach to the cognitive to the behavioral to the social uh through uh exercising their own beliefs and th that's what we need. weren't offering so we diagnose them on this scale but then we don't offer help on all equal scale so do you take on clients now uh, I, I do what I call mental training. Yeah. Uh, that's the legal thing that I can announce, right? In uh, Florida, <laughs> basically, without licensure, all you really need to do is get the life coach and you get the liability and the coverage, right? Mm -hmm. You just don't call it counseling. I thought, that's fine. I'd rather not call it that anyway. Uh, it had negative stigmas, I think, to it anyway. So mental training is something that I do see uh, certain people about. Uh, you can book it online at amari.com, but uh, it's one hour of kicking your front door psychology, and it's about teaching it and not, I don't know how to sound, I'm trying to be PC, but uh, I, I just ran into a lot of therapists and psychologists that surround knowing what they need to tell the person and hoping they'll be able to circle their way there because we don't want client dependence. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, rather than doing something like that, I thought, man, what if I just teach them the tools that I use to come to that discernment? If I can say, well, I use these tools to process this, what if I just teach them the tools? That's what I used to do as an addiction counselor. I'd say, here's the tools, here's the ABCs, if you will, of cognitive approach, right? Do it yourself. Um, because that's what helped me. I was I was like, look, I'm not going to learn anything from a therapist. I got to go be one. Then I'll see what this is all about. Well, yeah. <laughs> that was kind of my approach. So I wanted to teach people that way and saying, hey, you, you can use the same tools to decipher pretty quickly uh, and, and make changes quickly on your own. Yeah, so, well, that sounds like a business model that engages the moral molecule for sure. That was uh, a, I like that. a 180 from what you were used to, right? I'm now looking at the news and um, something that you were talking about a while ago when you were on Rogan. Sorry to keep coming back to that, but something that you had been talking about is how unscrupulous these rehab industries were. And I'm now seeing on the news, and I think they are in Florida, these places going down. One one went down here, too. That 600, 600 people arrested almost. Uh, multiple facilities in South Florida on both sides of the of uh, east and west coast. Man, to, dropped them. For people who are getting their news just on sound bites and slogans, can you give a, just a slightly more descriptive answer about what's going on and why they are being arrested and they're going down? Oh, man, they went in, dude, they put in uh, undercover clients and walked them through the entire processing, uh, what they were billing. I mean, just walked them through, like, clients' undercover stuff, man. And what they used to do is they knew they had violations. We were still running on a paper chart system, man, <laughs> paper charts. And... Well, paper charts can have errors and mistakes, right? So I think it was Jayco that overlooked us. They would show up randomly. It'd be a quarter million dollars, half a million dollar fine, but they'd just pay it and never change anything. Huh. And uh, <clears throat> all those violations. So they just walked people through the system and out of the system. They were finding uh, what, what I even saw frequently is sometimes a psychiatrist or someone that used to be a patient there uh, started uh, sober homes and then had like six sober living facilities that were linked to it. So they were feeding them clients directly out of their own rehab. 
and then uh, then bust them with medication, kick them out, keep their rent, cycle them back through the dual diagnosis inpatient facility. I mean, man, it just it rampant, rampant. Anything you could walk through. Now, <laughs> that's what they went and discovered. And when they finally discovered, that's what I was pointing out. See, on Rogan, I got a lot of hate mail because I, I generalized a few things. <laughs> sure. Uh, you know about how the patients were treated, like Ritz Carlton, and that's not what I meant. What I meant was if I live, if I'm staying at the Ritz Carlton and I ask for something, they're going to get it. So any patient there, as long as you had days and Medicare was paying, man, you could switch psychiatrists. You could come to the counselor and say, oh, I don't like this therapist. I'm going to switch over to so-and-so therapist. And man, them directors would be like, yeah, sure. No problem. Just stay here. Whatever makes you comfortable. Just, <laughs> just stay here and finish, you know, and they'd be just insubordinate, but we couldn't do anything. We couldn't, we, our hands were tied therapeutically uh, because they had days and they knew it. And that's what I meant. Uh, and not that it was it was the Ritz Carlton. Some of these places are nasty, man. They got bed bugs. Uh, it's, they can be gross, some of them. But uh, it was just it was a madhouse, man. And I just said, this isn't. What are we doing here? Yeah, it's not that people shouldn't get some of the things that they want. It's just that it looks like you're paying enough money, you have the right coverage, and you're you have days there, like you said. Then you ask for something, and you shall receive. Um, so this is all sounding. A lot like the best you get in um, these treatment centers is that you go there, it's a shitload of money, but maybe you're covered by insurance, and you stay there for, what was it, 28 days, I guess, but you were saying 30 to 60, and... Uh, you know, all, all insurance dependent, and, and mind you, yeah, I'm yeah. talking about Medicaid, Medicare-funded facilities, not a lot of, not private or, or uh, self-pay, you know, that like a passages of Malibu, etc., Oh, I see. Uh, this is direct Medicaid. So it's really the government dollar paying for it, not necessarily their money paying for it. So you go there, you get time away, you get all the things that, well, maybe some places you get medication and, you know, a nice place or you meditate, you go to AA, all the things that you can get for free or really low cost that you're either paying for or, like you said, um, your insurance money is paying for that we're paying through the government. That's the best case. And then the worst case is that you're going to a facility that's fraudulent and just, you know, completely criminal. That I don't like my spread there. No, and that's <laughs> the shitty part is I, I think I didn't represent the patients enough on Rogan uh, in saying that's who I really felt for. Anybody would have to told you that their people want to transfer in my group. They, they saw I, I, I did it with a passion. You know, I really gave a shit. And I think when you go through the system enough, you know who really gives a shit. And I, my heart went out to the therapist as well. They're just just they're struggling in the same system, being paid a salary, working 50, 60 hours over, doing their best, getting paid shit, uh, get jaded 10, 15, 20 years later when you have a, a one to two percent recovery rate man and when i realized my entire patient list had returned within two years i'm going see how do what are we doing right we don't change anything and for me it was you know my solution really when people ask me okay so it sucks at least it's something i said that's, that's great but we're talking about people's kids here and parents here uh it's indiscriminate it doesn't matter right i mean this is, does you can just sprain your ankle doctor hands you something next thing you know four months later you're hanging out in rehab with us yeah. so it, it doesn't matter at this point and you know if we were able to offer open help access to everything from psychedelics to brain imaging to whatever we could but do that within the home going into their environments and sure it may be more more money send two three counselors at once work a uh, at-home structure to help really make changes in the environmental uh, impact while you're doing the other 
Uh, sure, it may be more expensive up front, but in the long run, if you got a one to two percent recovery, these people are dying from our from our help, from our so-called treatment. They're dying, and I and no one was changing it. No one can talk about it. And the solution for me is that in the long run, we end up saving way more lives, way more money in the long run. Is that how you are treating clients now in all the ways that you talked about? You said that you kind of build a framework for educating the person about themselves and uh, the biology, psychology, and their social uh, surroundings. Is that something that you're able to do on your own? Um, walk me through kind of how you treat a client of yours. Yeah, well, uh, definitely wouldn't be treatment. But the first thing we screen for is any current experience of mental health diagnosis. So uh, whether you've been professionally treated or currently under treatment, et cetera, that's the screening process in the beginning. Uh, and if so, that's usually cut short. And my good friend, uh, Dr. Parker Mott, has been on the show a lot. Uh, as a practice, he's a psychologist practicing license. That's where that referral goes to. And generally through an introduction process via email, we find out that information. Once that's set up, um, we schedule the hour call. And for me, what I like to do is listen to begin with, right? I, I just kind of ask a question. And I listen for how someone tells their story. And uh, it's amazing when people are just given the open mic, if you will, and can just cognitively rampage uh, how much they'll give away about what's in the present, what's really bothering them. Uh, and I generally attack that, right? And if I wake them up to how I can easily attack the story you're telling and, and modify that perception with my own, look how easily you can apply it. That would be the walk-in, like you and I discussed in the beginning, first trying to mm -hmm. get them to commit to that idea, at least that the only truth may be that truth is that there is none at all. Yeah, so I said treatment at the beginning. I, I really meant the, the way that you act toward them. So, yeah, we wouldn't call it treatment. Um, I guess what I hear you saying is that Taking care of yourself and all the areas of life is sort of the antithesis of addiction. Like, do you see when people come to you that you say that you can see uh, pretty easily what areas are missing? Is it mostly uh, connection of some sort? Is it resources or is it kind of like you had, you were missing the sense of adrenaline? What is most common for you if you can pinpoint something? Well, I, I think it's a, it's a mixture of things because, look, we, I, I love Dr. Gabor Mate's work, mm. but I'm not going to say that all addiction is from trauma, and if not trauma, then social connection loss. Because, I mean, what's trauma? That's subjective, too. And if we all have trauma, then we all should be facing addiction. If we all have addiction on some other level, then what are we trying to fix to begin with by sure. pointing out the lack of social connection? So... Uh, it's an incorporation, once again, of all of it. Yes, I believe uh, a lack of social connection, of belonging, uh, is a massive impact. That's that environmental impact uh, of needing uh, or, or an idea of belonging, or at least feeling that, right, or thinking we do, uh, is a massive impact. But um, trauma is another one. I say, you know, I would see that a lot. But half and half, I would say, in my treatment groups, half did experience some trauma. But the other half, like I said, it was a sprained ankle or a hurt back that turned into one pill that turned into 10 that turned into heroin. And then maybe they had a trauma along the way of that, right? So to pinpoint to say, hey, it's trauma that leads to it, a lack of this, it's, well, it's social theory. That's the reason. It's trauma theory. That's the reason. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I think it's all of them. I think they all are at play, which is why uh, a treatment that's effective that actually works quickly um, 
to change this is is one on all levels: the behavioral, the cognitive, the biological, the social. You have to you have to address all of those at once to make a, an actual change that you can hold on to. I love it, man. So addiction itself is you can't find it anywhere. There's no addiction center of the brain. There's just no there there. And same thing with the life process that is addiction. You can't fix one thing and say that's the that's the addiction source. So I really like how you're talking about it. I want to get back to because um, I forgot to go over this. I want to get back to your life and how you made a transition. Now you've given me some pretty good information about it. Am I correct? I'm like pulling this up right now. Uh, do you you're involved in uh, MMA and you want to show about that too? Um, yeah, we're playing around with a show uh, for possibly ESPN on 580. Nothing big, just a local radio AM station is, is what it is. So um, if for younger generation, that's the thing in your car that actually picks up a signal. <laughs> Um, but, um, for me, I'm a huge MMA fan. I got a lot of friends involved, uh, from the UFC on down. And, you know, the, the third book I'm writing right now is called athletes depression. And for me, it's been a lot of focus, even in my, my own study, uh, with TSBT, et cetera. So I'm, I'm just into that. Uh, I love the competition, the, the optimization physically of it, but, um, yeah, the FML show as it's called, uh, is really just a Florida MMA live, uh, but, there's a lot of UFC coverage, a lot of that kind of coverage, but for me, it was about the the Florida-grown uh, men and women, the the fighters here that are on the local level, trying to move from amateur, that are on the pro circuit here, that are local people uh, that do bubble once in a while out of here and, and really make their name uh, in the UFC. Tell me about what is athlete's depression. I heard you mention that sometime before, or would you rather wait till the book's out to talk about it? No, I'll, uh, I, I love to talk about it because um, the more people that find out uh, sooner, great. You know, I don't need to be notified as, you know, the guy that founded anything. Or That's why for me, when chemical incarceration, when I found Stanton's work, et cetera, I'm like, this dude's a pioneer. He's been out here doing this shit, you know, pointing yeah. this stuff out for a long time. Uh, that's why I talk about him. I, I, talked, I spoke about him on my last inter- – a couple interviews actually. But, um, you know, make, making that, that, that change for it, really trying to fight the system. Um. Oh, circle me back, Zach. <laughs> Lost myself, man. Athlete's depression. Yeah, and so athlete's depression, thank you, um, <laughs> plays an important role to me because being an athlete, um, that was like my only outlet, right? That's what I needed, right, was more hypervigilance to substitute more hypervigilance uh, <laughs> in my life. And I played every sport under the sun as long as I could. And imagine I grabbed on to, to um, football, if you will, uh, getting to smash my head around. But uh, and other people, but um, I realized that I want to say we're almost raised differently. You know, I, if you would imagine raising little gladiators uh, from six and seven years old, even younger nowadays with the competition for scholarships, and understanding there was a different development from childhood for a human being, if you will, an athlete. Uh, I I started to look into the attachment of the who we are uh, based on our performance and the label that we give ourselves. And my sanity, if you will, or my my title, my I was defined by being the linebacker in high school, right? That was my identity. That's where my social connection came from. This defined who I was, right? So I thought about an athlete that played into high school and found uh, the growth there, safety there, connection there, defined uh, defining who they were there. Even if you played up to the pros or college, right, when we lose this, it's just taken away. One day you just don't go to practice or, or games or tournaments, whatever. 
And that identity is then questioned immediately at a young age of who we are or who we've been. And we don't know anymore. And there's a different impact. And so with a different development than the given child development that you know well uh, know well of, there's got to be something different, a little bit harder of an impact, maybe a different transition, a different change. And then I was looking at athletes from MMA to football. We're seeing the CTE stuff coming out now with head injuries. But I think we're missing a lot of the mental health impact, the depression impacts immediately that begin to happen just from loss of identity, just from loss of social group. Uh, and we're treated differently, right? If you're told every day from six years old what you're supposed to eat, what time you get up, what you're supposed to wear on Thursdays and Fridays at the game, on the bus we're wearing this, on the plane home we wear this. You can't say this on the mic. You can say this on the mic, right? Your contracts depict what you are and aren't allowed to do. When this shapes you, then you go away. No one's there to coach you. No one's to give you the routine, tell you how to get up. We think of athletes as optimized human beings, but they are, but they've kind of been constructed that way and coached that way. And then when you remove that, um, we don't even get the social recognition to check with the guy playing next to you, the girl playing next to you. We lose all of that um, reassurance, planning, what the plan is, what's the goal here. And a lot of top-end research places even have found that employing ex-athletes, they find it difficult because having to problem-solve on your own, work past it, right? But there's issues there. And then I looked at a lot of athletes that I saw along the route plus myself, and there's a different etiology. The way this, in my head, manifests is uh, because they're raised differently, they're taught really to fight, A, needing help. I can do it myself. I can push through. They're given a lot of good skills at a young age that come from becoming a high performance athlete mentally, especially. And so we apply a lot of these when the game is over, when we remove the title, we apply some of this. And every once in a while, it may look like we're ADHD. It may look like it. They're, they're working all night, working all nighters, but they're just trying to make a company or start something new or save up. But it appears to be something else that may fail for various reasons. They fall off to a depression. My point is over a long period of time is how this begins to manifest differently because we ignore certain early symptoms of a, maybe a basic depression or just an adjustment disorder. But over time, not having the tools, judging self by our performance as an athlete equals the value of who we are mixed with all kinds of social effects, um, biological effects even, and misdiagnosing. And so if they do seek help, which is generally way later when it's gotten really bad, you see a typical diagnosis like depression or bipolar and the typical approaches with that. Well, the development of that specialized athlete is not what your research determines based on how you're treating that so-called bipolar diagnosis. And for me, a lot of times it's athlete's depression. And to treat an athlete, you have to treat an athlete the way that that athlete was cultivated on all fronts, biologically, cognitively, environmentally, socially. You're talking about a universal in the developmental process where you, you're successful in the confines of your high school or group or club or whatever the elite practice is, and then you find, all of a sudden it just kind of drops off the table. You're there in society and you're not sure what to do. It's really interesting that you're honing in on the athletic side. Well, I know that lends itself very naturally to you. Um, it's something that I'm noticing at the high school level now, and I can't help wonder some of my students who I think, well, thank God they have this sport. I'm, I'm starting to shift my focus from thank God they have this sport um, because that is good. We want to celebrate successes, but I'm starting to think more future-oriented and think, well, geez, now what do they do when they leave high school and this is all gone insofar as they don't play later? 
what do you have recommendations for first steps? You know, so it's not so, so it's more of a transition, not so much just kind of the rug being pulled out from under you. Awareness. I'm definitely not writing this book. Uh, I got a co-author, Nick Leinfelter. We're not writing this book uh, anti-sports at all. It's awareness of the effects of how we apply that in our psyche over our behavior over time. So if we are aware of what will happen and then we can begin develop an approach and a, a walk down, like you said, uh, that first, where do we begin? Well, what I think is great is find the tools or what you sought out, but being aware that you may still be seeking out the thrill of the field or the court of what that feels like when you're applying what you think is something you're now passionate about. So I did that and I became a passionate dope dealer. I became a passionate dope boy robber. <laughs> I became really passionate about the story I told because I, played, I applied all those same tools. Uh, but the idea of knowing what you're experiencing, knowing that it's you may not need to trust your thoughts for a little bit, right? That's telling you what to do. Uh, being able to question the tools that you've learned to become that athlete, not necessarily will apply, but it's questioning that, but being aware of it early. And if you think about it, man, imagine for myself, day in and day out, I was defined as the football player. My dad took this <laughs> this real I laugh now because uh, you imagine a, an eight-year-old walking in the garage with a deep uh, dad who's staring out into nothing and says, son, you want to play pro football, huh? And I'm like, well, yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> and then he goes, okay, do you know what that takes? Little do I know what the hell I'm signing up for, <laughs> right? I'm, I mean, ex-Green Beret boot camp is what I just signed up for. <laughs> and that, that became my life, man, dude. I mean, my middle school was a terror. Um, running at 5 a.m., working out, eating till I threw up, but then I needed the calories, had to eat back. It was terrorizing, man. And the behavior of that day in and day out, and I'm just supposed to what? Go to a counselor once a week and work that shit out? <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm just supposed to change it, right? If, so you find places to apply that, and that's where you got to be careful. If you're applying that, I mean, think about it. Think about the special forces guy or the, the, the Marine who uses these you know, surviving skills that hones himself to be whatever he becomes in, and or she becomes in Afghanistan. And then they drop back in, in America and they go, okay, go to work. You got this finely tuned machine that's like, wait, I, I have to apply this somewhere. That's the athlete. They're coming off the court finely tuned in a world uh, where that's not applicable. And trying to make that transformation is hard, but being aware of, of that, you, you can modify that transition and, and take it a lot more delicately. Absolutely. And the people tend to make the transition. You look at Vietnam vets, um, that's a study now much more frequently uh, looked at. Is you know 90% of people back from Vietnam who are talked about having an addiction to heroin uh, ended up getting you know, reoriented with society. And that's kind of what you did. It's like, Adam, you were told or sort of identified as a football player as if that embodied your whole existence. And you have this sort of package of skills and preferences and things that you love to do. So now I look at you and it's like you're an entrepreneur and, you know, you're right. You have your third book coming out. You have your podcast. Um, you are helping people by guiding them in their own life process. Um God, you're doing the you're doing the MMA, you know, stuff on the radio, and, and from what I can tell from following you, you're traveling all over the place. You're like never, you're kind of never sitting still, and it's all working in your favor. All those things that you did while you were that you enjoyed doing while you were playing football, and then that you enjoyed doing or were chasing when you say that you were in sort of an addictive state. Um, I can't help notice that you've applied those things to all of your areas of life. How are you feeling now? <laughs> I love it. I, I love the psychoanalysis on reverse, man. 
because I have. It's just the realms you apply those in, right? It's it's the it's where you choose to apply it. And for me, uh, every time I go live uh, on my own podcast or interview on somebody else's, man, I'm nervous like it's the day I'm walking into Rogan, man. Yeah. Like, you know, I get that same, oh shit, <laughs> I don't even know what I'm going to say. You know, I, I walk in open. I, I don't. I take a few topics and roll there at best. But you're right. I still apply them there and. Um, it's, it's how we apply those tools, right? The umbrella, the filter that we look at those tools and how we apply them. You'll find, what, 50, 60% of athletes uh, that played uh, combat uh, or combat or um, collision sports in high school um, find themselves either attempting or thinking about uh, attempting MMA. Mm. So you see the crossover there, and, but the risk is still there, right? But uh, imagine applying that same sort of focus uh, toward, uh, I don't know, inventing a, a new machine or a new concept or writing their own book, right? Those are where you can apply those to uh, and, and find yourself excelling and changing the perception how and when we apply those tools and, and, and for what purpose. That's, uh, that's a, for what personal purpose. I'm not a believer in find your purpose. That's uh, irrational if you ask me, but uh, you can apply at least what that means to whatever you want it to be as, as a superpower. Adam, I, we're running out of time, and that's I'm sorry to say I think we're starting to get into the fruit of all of it. But um, look, I want, I'm definitely going to order your book. What is your book yet to be published? Does that have a title? Yeah, it's uh, Athletes Depression. Um, we're not sure about the trademark of the rest of it, um, but for now, I'm just we're calling it Athletes Depression. Uh, whether it's trademarked or not, if it is, uh, we'll remove it, but it may be called The Killing Fields, Athletes Depression, um, because this may move on to a series, as we're, as Nick mm-hmm. and I are doing a lot of research now. Uh, he's a uh, assistant, um, assistant professor up at, I uh, forget the college, but for sports psychology. And as we're doing surveys and, and learning certain things, um, putting uh, a book out, something like this, or letting people know about it uh, quickly is something we're really trying to do uh, I- immediately. That's awesome. So I will point people to your podcast, Cognitive Brand Page, um, to your books, and they can look out for your, this next book. Um, if people want to... Uh, get into more of oh. your work. What? You know, you know what, man. I, I drew a, a mind blank there, but I was talking about a series of how we were wanted to keep it called the Killing Fields because, as you pointed out, uh, we can take this label, if you will, of the athlete's depression uh, and gear it toward a societal impact to where how we apply labels to our own lives, including the label of "I am an addict" or "I have depression." Um, can play into any role that we allow too much to become who we are. So it, it may end up being a, a series of books um, that's geared toward possibly the, the next one being um, society depression. See, I love that because that is what I was sort of trying to get into earlier. Not I, And I was trying to say it in a way that you knew I wasn't taking away from uh, the thesis of your book because you're talking about athletes' depression because that's one area that you're so familiar with and you're able to study. But, yeah, you could sort of think of an infinite – almost a number of books that could be published about that because you're embedded in a life area and you don't know where to go from there with your, you know, preferences and everything. Yeah, man, stay-at-home parent depression. You know what I mean? Come on. Uh, Working parent depression, right? Overworking parent. I mean, apply it to any social role that we take on. Uh, And where I get into the specifics of the differences is actually the treatment methods applied toward that because the environments are different, right? How they were raised, the development was different, Um, unless they are athletes too. But uh, that's where you really get into the the little nuances of uh, of the differences, really, of treatment. 
That's right. I really like how you're not. See, this is where psychologists who want to make a buck can say this is the be all end all. You can say, oh, athlete's depression, that's why everybody's addicted. You know, you can pick out these little subfields. I like the way you're talking about it. You were saying that uh, there are different ways in which people can feel isolated or like they're not connected or like they don't have the things that they need to be operating full steam, right? And, uh, you know, it's you can, you can break them into subgroups, but you're not saying that any one of those things is the most important. So I appreciate it. And I, I really do. I want my listeners to be directed toward your work, and I'm going to order your book right now. What, what is um, – you're busy, so will you direct them to whatever your most salient projects are now? Yeah, everything is at uh, cognitiverampage.com uh, or adamlowry.com. That's L-O-W-E-R-Y. Uh, I do a little bit on Twitter, not much. Everything shared equally at some places, but I spend a lot more time uh, on Facebook doing live videos. Uh, I call them Adam's Rampages or Cognitive Rampages uh, on my Facebook page. I uh, I don't plan them. I randomly just get hit with something and uh, go off for some time, but you can find those on YouTube as well. We broadcast the podcast. Every podcast is live, um, so no take backs. Uh, oh, you're brave. Is there. So, yeah, you can uh, subscribe on YouTube, please. Uh, subscribe on iTunes to the podcast. If you're subscribed on, on YouTube, you'll be notified when we go live. Uh, and eventually, if you don't want to be on Facebook, every live Facebook I do on Rampage or on um, Facebook, every Rampage I do there, I upload to YouTube as well. So, uh, but everything's through the website. Um, the book is on Amazon. Uh, please, if you do buy it, uh, leave a review after you read it. Hopefully a five-star one, but uh, reviews help, and they also help on iTunes as well. So, yeah, thank you. Well, thank you. I, you were uh, very enjoyable to talk to, and I know you're really busy, so I genuinely am grateful for the time you took to chat today, man. Hey, man, I appreciate it, dude. Uh, we, I'm glad we could move it around and find the right time. Uh, I've, I've really enjoyed it, man. I, I love talking to somebody else that I can tell has a, a genuine, uh, real interest in focus in, in the subjective, open field of, of our human experience, man. Well, thank you. Well, let's do it again sometime. Hey, anytime, brother. All right, folks, again, this is Adam Lowry, mental health counselor, author, and host of the podcast, Cognitive Rampage. Oh.